from a hardware perspective if you look at our industry right there's been a steady trend from using like manual sort of manually heavy machines so let's take cutting grass for instance right at the very beginning people were using scythes right they would like take a long blade and they just manually squish it to like cut grass then from that like the hardware evolved to have like a lawnmower like which had an engine that was put on top of like a spinning metal blade and that would cut grass. So a lot of the tasks in our industry, whether it's mowing or sweeping or, you know, snow clearing, they're all done using machines already today. So that's one really good part about like our industry, which is it's already heavily mechanized. So then the question we asked was, okay, so what's the problem to be solved here, right? Is it building better hardware? Because the hardware is already pretty good, right? The people for the past 20, 30 years have perfected building these really good machines. The problem is that they can't find people to operate these machines today. Because, you know, there's a huge labor shortage in our industry. There's not enough people showing up to do the work. So then the question is, okay, what part of the design process do we focus on? It's clearly not building better hardware. It's actually building a brain and sensors that can sit on top of this hardware and drive the existing hardware to do better. So that was our initial focus and that continues to be our focus today, which is we're focused not so much on building the end actuators and the end machinery, but really perfecting like the sensors and the compute and the software that can drive this existing machinery. So that's kind of like how we look at hardware design. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um... So on the hardware side, when you're scaling a product from like zero to one, it's very challenging. It has its own challenges because then you're trying to define like, okay, what's the sensors I need? What's the equipment? What's the bare bone requirements? And that is definitely where there's a lot of creativity and there's a lot of like um, kind of redesigning designs and like iterating. When you go from like one to let's say 40, it becomes very different in its own way. Cause now it's like, you're thinking constantly about like wire connections, like how is the reliability of this? Um, you start being like, oh, USB turns out that's a very unreliable connector, right? Um, so it's definitely a whole different like hardware game in that way, bomb cost matters a lot. Um, and we have a really good hardware team who's now thinking about reliability and all that. And it's actually been really cool to, to work on that process. Software is also its own game because really when we look at our current product, what we decided to do was use minimal sensing, minimal hardware components, and put all the burden on software. So now it gets really challenging because to operate 40 robots at scale where they have to wake up and just do unstructured tasks every day, um, you encounter so many corner cases in the physical reality that like being able to actually maintain and manage that and understand it from the fleet data, that's where it's really interesting. Like how do you, with robotics, you're processing terabytes of data daily and you need to be able to like automatically go in and start flagging, like here's what happened, here's the event, here's the situations. 
and like making sure that like the relevant information gets back to you. And then if you push code out to a fleet, it's like subtle things that didn't occur in testing suddenly pop up everywhere. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a very different game than let's say like a grad student where you're just like making like a robot in your lab, you kind of run it like 80% of the time it works and you're like, yeah, that's great. I need a paper. Um, it's interesting because the long tail of the problem is where you spend every day on. So like that is kind of a different nuanced thing when you have a fleet of 40 robots is every day you wake up and you're, you're encountering the rare events because you're at scale and like getting so much time on the robots, it's all rare events that become common to you. So we're basically, we're a company called Electric Sheep Robotics. Uh, I'm uh, Nag, I'm the CEO and co-founder, and uh, Mike is our CTO. Uh, and we're basically, the way we look at us is we're building a new kind of a robotics company, which is, um, which is a vertically integrated uh, full stack landscaping business, uh, you know, that goes out and services end customers with their landscaping needs. But then we build our own uh, robots to service our operations so we're fu full stack vertically integrated that's how we define ourselves um yeah just to add to what nog said so we're a full-scale vertically integrated landscaping company using robotics one of the big tenets we believe is that like we really are trying to go back almost to the idea of like using like animal drill work but they're robotics they're intelligent agents there are cobots that assist people um and what's interesting is like in this industry where we have that dichotomy with like outdoor animals, but now we're just changing it, giving like these semi-intelligent creatures like the capability to like mow lawn very efficiently, work alongside a human, be aware of their surroundings. Um so yeah, it's a it's a pretty interesting um mixture of just like a very classic industry combined with like modern day AI to shape it and transform it. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to ask you guys about the, the beginning of Electric Sheep. Can you tell me about the, how it all started? It's maybe the early, early beginnings. Yeah. yeah, certainly. So the way Electric Sheep came about was when I was trying to solve my own problem as a homeowner. Uh, I basically, you know, was, uh, I bought a house in Virginia about four or five years ago, um, which had like a large uh, plot of uh, grass. And, you know, uh, I just got curious about, you know, how would someone go about maintaining it? Uh, I'd hired gardeners and, you know, they'd come up, come up with their equipment and, you know, take care of the grass. Then I started to think about other ways to automate this. And then I started talking to, you know, Jared and Mike about who I know through sort of uh, past sort of lives uh, about how, how might one sort of go about solving this problem. And then we realized that big uh, opportunity was sort of consolidating the landscaping industry um, and then, you know, automating it using like end-to-end -end ML approaches. And that's kind of like how, you know, the, the company came about.
when you start to think about solution, like it was a challenging at the beginning? It was definitely challenging, but then as a company, we've always focused on sort of solving the end customer's need first and then saying, you know, what what role should technology play? So from that perspective, there is no dearth of demand. Like the end customer exactly knows what service they're paying for, right? Everybody pays for lawn care services or landscaping services today. So the demand problem wasn't there. Technically, we've had like several challenges which we've overcome over the few years of building like these robots to service, uh, you know, the landscape. And Mike can maybe go into that uh, on the technical side. Yeah, I mean, so I think technically we've seen an evolution that you're you're kind of seeing across a variety of robotic industries. We started first with very like classic teach and repeat. Um, where the robot was perfectly like precisely shown like all motions for so by robot you know we we first studied like autonomous mowing that's like our flagship product that's um it's 30 percent of the revenue generated in this industry it makes sense to go after um so if you look at existing products there a lot of them are basically the idea of, like someone just precisely mows a lawn and then the robot um tries to follow that path using um as precise the globalization as you can have. Um, what's challenging about that, though, is one, I think it's it's hard for people to understand like how robots behave, and the scene can change a lot over time. So this idea of like, precisely following a path uh, in unstructured outdoor environments um, can be quite hard at times. And a lot of times, the, the robot just doesn't have the ability to plan, react, and reason. And then what ends up happening is the person has to constantly reteach the path. So then this becomes like a very like labor intensive, um, sort of like technical requirement for someone who's just a generic landscaper to do. Uh, and at the same time, we saw this technology start failing. We saw this like surgence of ML, which is something that I've been working on for the past like 10 years in the space of like ML robotics since I got my PhD at Berkeley. Um, and I've been really excited about like, how do we actually really make ML like the main workforce in robotics? So we've recently redesigned our entire like mowing platforms to start from the core principle of the robots to be able to wake up, understand the lawn and be able to efficiently execute tasks. So the operator is only required to hit on off basically with the robot. Um, and this is really interesting because now the robot has what we like to call like a world model. Like it sees the world, it understands it, it knows like how to manipulate it, how to traverse it, and then is able to execute the task on any site, any lawn. So our robots now are daily deployed in like Nashville, California. And people just put them on a new grass. There was no map, there was no pre-taught motion, and just turn it on. And then we the robots execute and try to perform tasks for them. And this gives us much closer to like a true autonomous agent. Which we're really excited about. We think the technology has, like, over the next decade, could be like really powerful for a lot of other tasks besides mowing, because now you're going at the heart of like how do you understand the world, how do you manipulate the world, the core found foundational problems of robotics. So that's what's really cool uh, about what we're kind of making, and definitely happy to get back into like the software side of that, and, like how we actually build it, stuff like that. What you guys have started to think about the the hardware of the robot? Can you just elaborate for people listening? Did you have the hardware before going to the ML part? But can you tell me about the process that you design or you already had the hardware? Can you tell more about the process to come up with a product at the beginning? 
Can you tell me that the process here? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, that's a really good question. From a hardware perspective, if you look at our industry, right, there's been a steady trend from using like manual, sort of manually heavy machines. So let's take cutting grass, for instance, right? At the very beginning, people were using scythes, right? They would like take a long blade and they just manually squish it to like cut grass. Then from that, like the hardware evolved to have like a lawnmower, like which had an engine that was put on top of like a spinning metal blade and that would cut grass. So a lot of the tasks in our industry, whether it's mowing or sweeping or, you know, snow clearing, they're all done using machines already today. So that's one really good part about like our industry, which is it's already heavily mechanized. So then the question we asked was, okay, so what's the problem to be solved here, right? Is it building better hardware? Because the hardware is already pretty good, right? The people for the past 20, 30 years have perfected building these really good machines. The problem is that they can't find people to operate these machines today. Because, you know, there's a huge labor shortage in our industry. There's not enough people showing up to do the work. So then the question is, okay, what part of the design process do we focus on? It's clearly not building better hardware. It's actually building a brain and sensors that can sit on top of this hardware and drive the existing hardware to do better. So that was our initial focus and that continues to be our focus today, which is we're focused not so much on building the end actuators and the end machinery, but really perfecting like the sensors and the compute and the software that can drive this existing machinery. So that's kind of like how we look at hardware design, um, if that answers, you know, the question. Okay, okay, makes sense here. But I was curious about me before going to raising the money and the seed, because I, I think that's an interesting part. The talks with the investors, like on product, product market fit, for example, I think that's a challenging part of people listening in robotic startups. Sometimes it could fail. You guys have the experience here, so can you tell about the, the challenging part and just, hey, we have this, and can you please just uh, like funding or fundraising? So, can you tell me about the stage, the critical stage of the startup? Did you guys face the, if you can share it also? Yeah, so we're about four years into our operation as a company. Uh, so we've raised uh, several rounds of funding, starting from like, you know, raising our pre-seed round in January of 2020 to raising our Series A in uh, Jan of 2022. Uh, so we've raised, you know, we've grown from like really small, like we grew out of my garage, literally, that was kind of like how the company got started. And then now, you know, we have a presence across four cities in the US. Um, it's certainly been challenging at every step of the way. And one thing to sort of talk about here is that each stage has its own challenges and own milestones that you need to pick to sort of go get to the next level. So at the, at the pre-seed stage, you know, we raised something like $500,000. And to get that, the first thing challenge we had to overcome was to build a prototype that could, you know, effectively demonstrate that, look, you may not have the idea fully fleshed out, at least show me as an investor that you have what it takes to sort of uh, have like a very early prototype and have it work. And so that was the challenge at the seed stage or the pre-seed stage. As you start growing the company, people now start expecting you to show, it's cool, you got a prototype, that's nice, but like, can you show that you're able to make money 
using the prototype, right? Can you show that people are willing to pay you lots of money to actually, you know, use your robots? And so that was the next challenge to overcome. And now the stage at which we're at as a company, we're a post-Series A going to a Series B company. Now people have bought the idea that, you know, hey, your robots work, your business model's working. Show me that you can scale it really fast. And so different challenges are different steps along the way. And, you know, so we've, and, and yeah, there'll always be even more challenges as we grow, but that's kind of like the nature of building a startup, I would say. Yeah, maybe for Michaela, I would ask you about the the software and hardware. I think in each episode we talk about was for like founders, the challenging aspect in the, in the, what you do, the software or the hardware, since there's sensor and you speak about the later large launch model here, but can you tell me about what, what more challenging for you from the technology, maybe Michaela? We... Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's it's a great question. Um, so on the hardware side, when you're scaling a product from like zero to one, it's very challenging. It has its own challenges because then you're trying to define like, okay, what's the sensors I need? What's the equipment? What's the bare bone requirements? And that is definitely where there's a lot of creativity and there's a lot of like um, kind of redesigning designs and like iterating. When you go from like one to let's say 40, it becomes very different in its own way. Cause now it's like, you're thinking constantly about like wire connections. Like how is the reliability of this? Um, you start being like, oh, USB turns out that's a very unreliable connector, right? Um, so it's definitely a whole different like hardware game in that way, bomb cost matters a lot. Um, and we have a really good hardware team who's now thinking about reliability and all that. And it's actually been really cool to, to work in that process. Software is also its own game because really when we look at our current product, what we decided to do was use minimal sensing, minimal hardware components, and put all the burden on software. So now it gets really challenging because to operate 40 robots at scale where they have to wake up and just do unstructured tasks every day, um, you encounter so many corner cases in the physical reality that like being able to actually maintain and manage that and understand it from the fleet data, that's where it gets really interesting. Like how do you, with robotics, you're processing terabytes of data daily and you need to be able to like automatically go in and start flagging, like here's what happened, here's the event, here's the situations and like making sure that like the relevant information gets back to you. And then if you push code out to a fleet, it's like subtle things that didn't occur in testing suddenly pop up everywhere. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a very different game than let's say like a grad student where you're just like making like a robot in your lab, you kind of run it like 80% of the time it works and you're like, yeah, that's great, I can get a paper. Um, it's interesting because the long tail of the problem is where you spend every day on. So like, that is kind of a different nuanced thing when you have a fleet of 40 robots is every day you wake up and you're, you're encountering the rare events because you're at scale and like getting so much time on the robots. It's all rare events that become common to you. Um, okay. So I think that's just kind of like one of the like insights that I've started realizing a lot. But it also makes for like that's where like the research is, right? When you're trying to ship ML robotics is like, how do you handle the long tail every day? Um, so I find it really fascinating. It's definitely really cool. I think it's interesting when you say it about minimizing the sensing and all the emphasis on the, and the brain side, software side, the consideration of the design, the beginning, you guys, to minimize the sensing, 
Can you tell me about that? Because it's interesting that human mind, hardware and all the software. Is it a trade-off here or something? Because it's an interesting point in the design consideration. Yeah, I mean, we really wanted to... I think that we, we tried earlier prototypes, we had a lot of sensing, like um, LiDAR and very high quality GPS um, cameras. And they looked more like a self-driving car that you might see on like, uh, you know, a company in San Francisco, right? Um, and what we realized is like, there's two things. One, if you have a very large form factor robot, which at the time we had, so think like a big mower that people ride on, um, it's really hard to guarantee safety and it's just a dangerous product. So what we did first is we made a big decision to scale down the size. So our robots are now, instead of being like some big, almost autonomous vehicle, they're actually small push mowers that you can swarm. Um, when we made the decision that swarm was the way we want to go, so it's like instead of maybe one robot tackles a field, we have two or three, you want to reduce the bomb cost of each one significantly. Um, so what, we'll, and by doing that, you really are saying like, use low cost sensing, use low cost and use minimal amount of sensing. Um, so our robots today are actually operating much more. So what, what they have is their primary sensor is just a stereo camera. So it's kind of similar like human eye vision. Um, and then they also have like low quality uncorrected GPS. Um, and then they have obviously like an onboard computer that can process all their information. And then they have like a, a small like bumper sensor around them just in case like it turns into someone. Um, but that's about it. So instead of, so really to operate and understand the world, it needs to be able to visually process it and understand everything just from camera screen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I will, I will add to this, you know, that basically like one of the things that attracted us to sort of this notion of machine learning, eating all parts of the robotic stack and software doing more of the heavy lifting, right? It, it came out of like our early experiments in the early days, we were very classical robotics driven in the sense that, you know, you had to have all these sensors, like Mike said, right? LIDARs and cameras and GPS and IMU and all that. But equally importantly, you, you, you had to have very precise, highly accurate and very expensive sensors because classical robotics needs like you to have, you know, like pre precision and accuracy, right? Like it needs you to sort of, because you're teaching these like really like precise paths, you need like the sensors to sort of all just work. And there's very little intelligence that's happening inside the brains of the machine in classical robotics. But with ML, what we found was that you can actually take like really basic sensors, even if they're not like high quality, right? But you can essentially, because you're teaching this, because this machine, the software has true intelligence and semantic understanding of what's going on, you can get by with very cheap hardware or very cheap sensors. So that trade-off actually, we're strong believers that that is a trade-off all robots are gonna make into the future. So, you know, I think there's gonna be more Tesla-like approaches using just cameras, as opposed to like more Cruise and Waymo-like approaches where you have like a $200,000 car, right? So I think we're betting big on like cheap sensors, lots of compute and lots of data. That's going to be the key differentiator for a lot of robotics. I agree with that. Yeah. Maybe I'm curious about the competitor here because in, when you're starting or still in the game, so 
the competitor. Can you tell me about the the competitors? Or I think that's maybe interesting because you have the hardware aspect and also the, the software here. So can you tell me how it's a game looks like? Yeah, so the way we think about our competitors, or we used to think about other robotics companies as our competitors. So we had a bunch of them, you know, that we were competing with selling to landscapers. But then we realized that to build like a truly successful robotics company, we need to we need to basically build it in a way that you actually don't have competition. And by that, I mean, we chose to build like a full stack services company so by that definition, our competition is another landscaping company, right? It's not like a robotics company that's selling to the landscaping company. And what that does is it puts us in like essentially like an like a greenfield opportunity where there's very few people who can truly do what we're doing as a business. Because we can not only deliver the end service like a landscaping company, we can also build our own robots. And that is way more, uh, you know it's way more competitive compared to anyone else. So let's say an external robotics company paired up with an external landscaping company, that product offering cannot compete with us on price or value or quality because we're vertically integrated. So I would say we chose to basically move away from competition and go to a space where, you know, there was truly no competition for us. So that's kind of like how I would describe, you know, how we thought about competitiveness. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, Kind of what Nog is saying, the, the vertical integration puts us in a very unique spot where we own the end outcomes of everything. Um, I would also say compared to other existing robot mower products, ours is probably the only one that says like no teaching required. Um, because we're in such a vertically integrated area, you know, you can have progressive automation. Our robots don't need to work perfectly out of the box. They can add some value and improve over time. Um, so it's a different product because you don't have to necessarily sell someone like, oh, here's a perfect robot. You're going to pay me money and use it. We can now say, here's a robot that will improve over time with our internal employees. They can use it daily and we can definitely go bigger in terms of like the AI and, uh, research goals for the product and the technology. I'm maybe curious about the cost here because we, it, I think the last announcement by OpenAI, so I don't know what you guys think about this recent announcement and also the cost wise if there is any consideration you have to do in the in the what you do i'm just curious about your opinion about the recent open airline day. yeah yeah so i think the the way we've thought about so open air is interesting right they're moving towards software agents that's kind of like the the future that they see so they've built this one gpt model but then they want like to liberate that and have like other people build lots of agents on top of it, right? So it goes from being just like a question answering machine, which is what GPT-4 or ChatGPT is today, to being more of like something useful, like a travel agent where, you know, you can just tell like this agent, hey, why don't you like book my trip to Tokyo, arrange for whatever sightseeing hotel, whatever, and come back to me once it's done. That's the future they want to go towards. And if you and if you ask a roboticist, they'll basically say they're trying to build software robots. That's what they're trying to build over here, right? Uh, but the problem with that approach is I think what people will find is that there isn't enough data 
to build these agents to be truly uh, autonomous, which means that they're not going to be able to sort of do a task end to end and do it accurately enough, uh, you know, to warrant sort of, you know, trusting them with like doing that task. And the only way that can happen is if you can own the data and own sort of the training methods and the reinforcement learning that happens to tune these models towards the outcomes that you want them to. And that again goes back to like our approach. We don't think you can just have like a one size fits all model that like someone like an open AI can just release and just gets perfect over time, you know, to along the axis of agency. So for us, we think like it's going to be, you know, like the approach that we're taking is is the right approach when you're trying to build like agents, whether it's software agents or whether it's like hardware agents like robots. But I don't know, Mike, if you had like a thing to add there. No, I think that's exactly it. What was interesting from the talk is like, you know, for a while, there was a sort of mythos of like, AGI is going to be solved. OpenAI is about to release GPT-5 and then everyone's going to like not work anymore. And like, yeah, very hyperbole statements, right? The recent update actually showed the limitations of current approaches. They're basically saying like, if you want something that's product ready, you need to customize it heavily for your task. And we'll give you tools and we'll give you like a sort of ways to do it. They're also not saying like, you know, if you want to train a custom model on your data, pay us like two to $3 million was put in their like feature releases. Um, but all that goes to the, the same idea that Nog's saying, like you need a sandbox that's custom to your task in some way for these entities to learn. And when you really think about physical robots, yeah, you're not going to be able to web scrape and get something reliable enough to be a product that can be used every day. You have to go out there and iteratively learn from experience. Um, so I think it already reinforces the idea that like you need that experience from an agent daily to become like product ready. And that's sort of why our entire business follows design around a lot like that. So I'm curious to ask you maybe the stressful moment on the in your journey as a startup. Do you guys recall any really stressful moment? I think we have several stressful moments every day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I'd say I mean yeah it's it's just it's just nature the nature of building businesses um but I mean generally the stresses are around uh product launches and you know uh getting new customers and growing revenue I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call out any one particular thing you know but uh that's just the nature of building a business, every startup's like that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I will say like, if you have a team that's all extremely passionate and cares, it's going to be stressful because everyone's going to be like constantly like, this needs to be better. And that is good in a way. Um, yeah. But yeah, like <laughs> it's the nature of the beast, I feel like. Yeah, it's a good problem to have. Yeah. I was just curious about the client who... Can you tell me about the clients who are the client, like just in general, a client just interested in? Yeah, so our customers are large property managers and high-end residential owners, uh, homeowners. So anyone basically who, so let's say you have like, you know, uh, uh, let's say you have like a large warehouse that an Amazon or a FedEx or someone owns, they'll have like 
uh, they'll hire someone like us to uh, service the outdoor property, right? And we'll show up there with a crew of like humans and robots and we'll take care of that property. Another kind of customer is a, a municipality uh, uh, who basically is in charge of overseeing the maintenance of parks in like a city or a town. So we service several such municipalities in Southern California where we'll, you know, show up and take care of like these large outdoor parks uh, or public spaces. Um, and then same with like residential customers, you know, we have like a bunch of high-end residences that we service. Uh, these are like large five, 10 acre properties, uh, you know, then they'll sort of, they'll have larger budgets to sort of service uh, for their outdoor maintenance services. So it's a mix, but I'd say we largely focus on large commercial customers and not as many residential because commercial customers tend to be a lot more bigger in sort of ticket size and, you know, revenue amounts that we can generate. I'm curious, do, do, do you guys sell the hardware or the subscription, that, how, how it looks like for... I know we just sell the full service. We end up, we show up and we do the full service, you know, whether it's, you know, basically we show up with a crew of humans and robots. So, so for an end customer, they don't, honestly, they don't even realize, you know, whether it's being done by a robot or a human being at the end of the day, they just get, they pay us money to do a piece of work and we just get it done. We just happen to use robots to do it internally. Honestly, the end customer, I mean, they'll walk by and they'll be like, oh yeah, that's cool. Like, you know, you're using robots, good job, right? But that's about it. Uh, yeah. They're not like, they're not going to sit there and say how, you know, why is that robot doing this and that? It's, it's very different for us. So since it comes down to every question, maybe about when you mentioned you, you guys moving towards no competition and, and also you mentioned you guys are acquiring, I don't know if you can catch me about the acquiring of just smaller maybe startup. I'm just curious, what, what do you mean by acquiring and uh, even your website, your, your, your goal to acquire? I don't know. Can you, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, the, the market will sort of decide what's a monopoly and not. Like, honestly, at the end of the day, there's so much business and we're still so small relative to like how big we can grow that, you know, uh, no, I, I don't think it's possible to be a monopoly in this space. It's a very fragmented space, right? Um, but it's possible to build an insanely big business. So yeah. I think that's good enough for us right now. Okay, awesome. Now, just maybe for the technical side, maybe Michael just tell me what are the next thing? Like, as you mentioned, that every milestone you have different maybe goals. Um, I don't know, customer feedback. Someone told you, hey, you want X, Y, Z. If there is something just to like, I don't know, you can share interesting features or upgrades or something, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, you know, it's funny, like a lot of the, uh, well, so internally our customers are kind of the people on the ground using the robot, right? So we do have this sort of like, still like there's people using the robot and they want more productivity, more work. Um, a lot of times, like I think the number one request people are just like, can it go faster? Um, which we always like hold off on because it's safety related things, but you know, can it do more work more efficiently? Um, the more interesting though, long-term product is really like, so when you think of landscaping, it's a very rich, like mobile manipulation test bed, right? 
because you have everything from like string trimming to tree trimming where someone actually climbs a tree and cuts it to like handling like bushes and like weeding all of these dexterous tasks and what's cool about our business model because we own the entire vertical integration of it everything is sort of fair game for automation at some point um so when i look at the 10-year roadmap i don't see us just making mowing robots i see us really building like true embodied ai to do a lot of these tasks that's what's exciting um it's not exactly clear like when we're launching our next product, but we definitely are thinking about like other variety of tasks and how to use the same world model AI to do them. Um, so that's what really draws gets me excited about like what we're currently focusing on. So I think if we could push a lift and uh, we end the conversation here, uh, maybe of the scaling, do you uh, guys uh, do outside the US also or just uh, maybe I'm just curious, the scaling, demographic scaling here? I think we're very U.S. focused for now because, you know, the this is like a $250 billion market in the U.S. And uh, there's no shortage of like business for us to take. Um, mm -hmm. When it comes to things like, you know, because we do everything across the spectrum, like lawn care, snow removal, parking lot sweeping, all of that. All of these are things, you know, we can do using robots. Um, we have had sort of business inquiries come from other places like Australia and New Zealand. Um or even the UK, but those are relatively smaller markets for us. US is the largest market, so we're pretty much focused on the US for, you know, for mm -hmm. the time being. And there's no need for us to, uh, you know, we're growing really fast in the US and we just continue, want to continue to sort of stay focused and not get distracted in terms okay. of where. Maybe two questions about the safety, I think, because that's, uh, I think it's, I mentioned about the hardware, maybe sometimes the safety of the kid playing in the, in the garden, I don't know. Just situation like that, the safety situation, and also, yeah, if there's any consideration about it. And also how the user, like someone from no technical background, as a user interface, how it's easy and intuitive for, to be used by normal people, lay people. Yeah, so I would say like safety is something that we think mostly 80% when it comes to our product and then 20% is productivity. Um, because you are putting these robots out there and yeah, there's kids who play in parks, right? And these things are being mowing on kids. So there's different levels of safety. One of the big things we did is like looking at this space, what's common is you see someone try to take a large scale commercial mower that, you know, is maybe a thousand to 2000 pounds with a massive blade and try to automate it. We quickly reduce it to magnitudes, less weight and size. To be able to reduce the overall like risk they would have in worst case scenario of actually like touching someone um so that was our big like step towards a much safer product and then on top of that we have uh additional safety sensors like if the robot encounters any resistance when hitting something turns off the blades turns off wheels um and then we have the ability to yeah do collision awareness like see the world see the 3d geometry and not hit stuff um so we think a lot about safety. Um, sometimes we make our robots more conservative just because they're new. And yeah, like why try to put these things out there? What is, I would say, really nice about our task is like when you think about mowing, um, it's a task where like if you just stop in place or you turn around early and you don't finish something because you're not sure, you're still doing work. So if you cover the lawn 80% instead of 100%, 80% of the work was still done, that's valuable. And this is a really good task to actually start deploying and developing AI in because you can just, if 
anything's unsure in your stack, you have a very simple fallback. Where like a self-driving car, you can't just stop mid-road. Um, so that allows us to actually like really have like a kind of nice, um, easy fallback for safety considerations. But with some main autonomy, is not sure what it's doing. Great. So maybe the final thing, do you have any final words for people listening or maybe about like the sheep that you want to say? Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, we're building a really interesting alternative model to scaling robotics companies and building foundational models when it comes to outdoor autonomy. And we think this is really the only way to build sort of the robot GPT equivalent to power all outdoor automation. And so, you know, we'd love to talk to you you know, whoever's listening, if you, if, you know, if you're, if you'd love to learn more about us, come work with us, collaborate, you know, we'd love to sort of have that discussion and uh, yeah, looking forward to, uh, you know, chatting more about it. I think that, yeah, I think I'd say it perfectly. Um, if you believe in building the next frontier of robotics, like definitely reach out. Um, we really believe like ML is the, the pioneer, is the future and we're designing our entire company to build that. So um, I think what we're doing is very exciting. And yeah, like if anyone's listening, definitely like reach out to us.